Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 16th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Four weeks ago, the Department of Health told LMFM that a review of the decision to close the emergency department in Navin was underway. Oh yeah, we said, what's that about? Asked the HSE, they said. We did, we asked the HSE. The HSE said, no, a review was not underway, but one would begin the following week of the 25th of July. Oh yeah, we said, what's that about? Asked the Department of Health, they said. We did, but they said, ask the HSE. And on and on, it went like that until today, because the terms of reference for this review has been leaked to a national newspaper. So finally we get an idea of what's in it and reading Paul Cullen's report in the Irish Times today it is little wonder that the HSE and the Department of Health refuse to give LMFM sight of the terms of reference. That's because it's reported that the review is to find additional capacity elsewhere before closing the emergency department in Navan. It is to provide people with the assurance that it is safe to close the emergency department in Navan. It is to review the original plan to close the emergency department, to look at the pressure that that will put on Drogheda, and it is to highlight the risks to patients in Navan. This work is to be done before the date for closing the emergency department is confirmed publicly. The Irish Times also reports today that the HSE National Clinical Lead for Acute Hospitals, Dr Mike O'Connor, and National Director for Acute Operations, Liam Woods have been appointed as co-chairs of this group. It's a 17-person group and it will also include the clinical directors of Navin and Drogheda Hospitals as well as Connolly Hospital in Blanchardstown. They're to report to the HSE Interim Chief Operating Officer Damien McCallion and Chief Clinical Officer Dr Colm Henry. 
Let's speak now to Minister for European Affairs, local Fianna Fáil TD, Thomas Byrne, and local Aintu TD, Patrick Tobin, who's the chair of the Save Navin Hospital Group. A very good morning to both of you. Thanks indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Must stress, we still haven't had sight of the terms of reference that our requests repeated over four weeks have been ignored for most for the most part, uh, and uh, otherwise uh, we've been told to, to go to ask somebody else for them up until last Friday when we were told they'd be published shortly. They've still not been published, but they have been leaked to a, a national paper. But reading what you're reading today in the Irish Times, Patrick Tobin, is it any wonder that they didn't want this on local radio? Well, it is an incredible situation, and <clears throat> I think your introduction uh, highlights the, uh, the confusion within the HSE in relation to this. Um, it is incredible to think that the HSE had planned to close the A&E on the 30th of June. They have put a press statement out to say that, uh, and that the, you know, the terms of reference really only entered the, the debate after yourselves in LF, LMFM uh, and campaigners started to look for them. Um, and, you know, I, I would be cynical in this because I know what the HSE is like, and, you know, I would feel that these terms of reference were in response to the campaigners and to yourselves uh, in looking for them. But it, it asks serious questions. How come they're having a review now, after they made a decision to close the A&E in Navin? And how come TDs and ministers such as Thomas Byrne were, were happy to assent to the closure of the A&E before a review or a terms of reference were even carried out? Um, you know, it's, it's an incredible situation that any minister, any elected representative would support a closure of an A&E in their own mm. Uh, county before a review is carried out into the safety, into the capacity. Let, let, me, go to, let me go to Thomas Byrne because there's been a lot of people who have been very upset uh, that requests to see the terms of reference have been denied. Uh, and there's been uh, a lot of concern uh, that there's uh, been a second order placed on the HSE, gagging order by the minister on the HSE. Uh, is it not uh, odd, given all the giving out, that this has not been made uh, known locally that uh, uh, the detail of it uh, uh, appears at least to some part in a national newspaper today. Do you know anything about the leaking of that? I, I just I just sent the terms of reference to you and I actually sent them into your studio this morning. I thought you got them already. Um, they're available. I've just emailed them to you. Uh, there's no secret about them. It just takes time uh, to get these things together. Where this comes from, uh, this comes from the meeting that Patter was at, that I was at, uh, where we met um, the HSC back in June about Navin Hospital. question that I asked uh, at that meeting, what, a, what about capacity elsewhere? And I said this yeah. before to you on the, phone, on, on the radio. Now, I, I'm sure what you sent to us this morning was not the terms of reference. It was extracts from the terms of reference. As, as I understand it, that's the full terms of reference. That's the full terms of reference, OK. As I understand it. OK. Uh, and they were given to you by the Department of Health? By the Department of Health, yeah. OK. Yes. And have they, yes. been, uh, have they been published? I, I have to ask the Department of Health there, but certainly I was told I could make them available to you. Okay. And I've done that. Okay, okay. Uh, and uh, did you make them available to the Irish Times? No. Okay. Uh, so the Department of Health did that? I presume they did. I mean, it's the Irish Times health correspondent is reporting on that, so I assume that the Department of Health uh, gave them to the Irish Times, yeah. Okay, all right. Okay. I suppose that takes a, a bit of the heat out of the story, does it? That it's in I the don't think I mean I think we need to go back I mean no, uh, the conspiracy theories we need to go back to where this came from and I, I just said at the meeting in June mm. I asked a question about capacity 
uh, in other hospitals. Okay, the well, no, no. Was not satisfactory. I want to go. I want to go back to the conspiracy theory first of all, um, and then we can come to that if you like. Uh, but when you talk about the conspiracy theory, uh, these terms of published uh, reference were uh, given to you yesterday, uh, and they're effectively being published now by giving. As I understand that they were finalised right. maybe over the weekend. As over I understand. The, okay, and is it true to say that this group started working uh, on this review four weeks ago uh, without the terms of reference agreed? As I understand, that's not the case. No, I mean these are the terms of reference for the for the review. It's basically about capacity of the hospitals. The big the big questions that you've been where the terms where the terms of reference uh, agreed over the weekend. Uh, Finalised. Yeah, fi- well, that's agreed. Finalized. That's that's, that's agreed. Yeah, did, when when did the work begin? As I understand it, and again, I'm not directly involved in this. As I understand it, the Department of Health, sorry, Minister Donnelly asked for this review. I mean, you've been asking about this for some time. Asked for this review after that meeting in June. That's why the meeting in June is so important. Because of questions that, that I raised and others raised as well, about whether capacity was available at the hospital. So what he wanted was a short review to see what the capacity was like, what the needs were. We had doctors, obviously, Jerry McAdee, etc., saying this needed to happen. There was an issue of patient safety. And with other doctors who were saying, well, yes, we do agree okay. with the reconfiguration. The, the week beginning the 18th there. of July, uh, and I can't tell you exactly that day, what day, uh, the, the uh, spokesperson for the minister said that this review was underway. Uh, uh, the, 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 the HSE said it wouldn't be starting until the following week, which was the 25th of July, beginning the 25th of July. Is it your understanding that that work began that week without terms of reference being agreed? It, that's, that's not my understanding. That's not my understanding, but again, the Minister has... The ha, has the review begun? That. As I understand it now, it's beginning now. Ah. And basically, well, I mean, this, ah. what we're trying to do is, what we're trying to make no. sure... No, no. We, we we've been told that a, a review was underway. I, I've, I've never said that to you. No, um, no, we've been told so that by the HSE. We, 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 we've... We've put several questions uh, to the Minister, to the HSE, to the Department of Health, uh, all uh, making it very clear that we were working off the assumption that what we were told was true, that that work began the week beginning the 25th of July. Look, they will have to answer for that. I'm telling you what the situation is today. The terms of reference have now been finalised. This is basically, I mean, the terms of reference finalising was basically about getting the, the T's crossed and the I's dotted. If you're asking, about, if you're asking people to trust this process, given what I've just said, uh, I, I think what that's a tall about, ask. What this is about is what the Minister asked for after that meeting and after the questions you've been raising on the radio over the last two months and other people have as well. Yeah. Why couldn't they say capacity, the review hasn't started? Well, yeah, these are questions you'll have to ask mm-hmm. them. I All can't right. answer okay. them. But I do know it. Peter Tobey, what do you make of that? Yeah, listen, this is another example of the complete confusion that exists within the HSE and in government in relation to this whole process. It's very clear from the information that you have provided that the review has already started, maybe as far back as the 25th of July. It's also very clear that the terms of reference have just been agreed. So in other words, the cart has come before the horse here. The, uh, the terms of reference have been agreed after the review has started. Now, anybody looking to research empirically the state of the health service would know that's, the, that's backwards in how you would carry out any research or review. You work out the terms of reference, and then you start the review. And for, for me, much of this is just uh, window dressing to actually 
uh, hide a decision that's already been made by the government in which they want to proceed. They yeah. didn't want to carry out the review. The decision was made. They were going to go ahead with it. But the Save Navin Hospital campaign and serious political opposition happened. Sorry, excuse me. Which excuse me. Stopped Minister Stephen Donnelly stopped this process, which yes. was agreed in 2013. Stephen Donnelly stopped this process. HSE decided to go ahead with this process. Under Minister Stephen Donnelly stopped this process and ordered a review of capacity in other hospitals in the area to make sure that the questions that people have been asking will be answered satisfactorily. What did Minister Stephen Donnelly do to make sure that nobody died in, in the interim? He was told about this in November, wasn't he? I mean, we've all been we've all been told about it for the last year. Oh no, but the um, Minister for Health, uh, who has responsibility for delivery of health services in the country, was warned that there's a risk to human life and certainly poor patient outcomes by continuing with the situation in Navan. Uh, and then he was clo- told that the decision had been made to close it at the end of June. In, in the middle of June, he said, "Now, oh, hang on, lads." Uh, and then nothing has happened. Uh, we're going to be into September, ten months after the minister was told that somebody could die unless he did something. He's done nothing. That's that's not the case at all. I mean, look, if if you're going to do a reconfiguration like this, well, I mean, if you're going to do a reconfiguration like this, you need to make sure that the hospital capacity is available. It was not clear to me or other TDs that hospital capacity was available in Drogheda or in Connolly Hospital. Can I, uh, or can in, I come or, in there? Or among, or among it's, the GPs. It's really important. Uh, uh, this, uh, what this Michael, review is about. Just very briefly, if I can. It's really important that we put on the record here that Thomas Byrne said on your show, and people can look back on the podcast if they like, that he accepted Jerry McEntee's words that the A&E should close and he supported that decision. He okay. said it also in the Dáil. And maybe it's the right decision, but the, the, the question but that, I the, the, the question the question I was put, but but Patter, the question I was putting is what's happened since November to make sure that people don't die in Navin? If that's the and, advice and, of the HSE, I mean, either you build up the hospital or you close it down. You do one or the other. You don't leave it in limbo where somebody could die, surely. And this is the point. We're we're told that the reason for the closure of the A and E is because of this emergency situation in terms of people's lives, and yet. When the HSC have an opportunity to put in supports and an extra capacity there to protect people's lives, they, they don't do that, and either has the minister. We in the Save Navin Hospital campaign have asked dozens of times for the government to put in place acute surgery services in Navin. And we have been told by the, 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 the consultants in Drada that acute surgery services in Navin would make Navin A&E amongst the safest A&Es in the country. Okay. The same level as Port Leisha, Kilkenny and Wexford. OK, but uh, as things stand, Thomas Byrne, again, I just want to ask you about this. Um, is it good management for the Minister for Health to preside over a situation for 10 months without taking any action? A, a, a situation that is so dangerous that it could lead to an unnecessary death? Well, actually, the situation this decision was taken back in 2013 uh, and has been repeatedly put off. That's the reality of it. That, that was uh, a policy decision. That was yeah. in, in November, the minister was told that it, it is a risk to patient outcomes and human life. Yeah, the HSE has said that. But, I mean, the questions that we asked after that, and in fairness, other consultants asked in other hospitals, uh, where was the capacity there? Would we make it a dangerous situation worse by overloading are the Lourdes Hospital and Connolly Hospital. So that's what this review is about, is to answer those very legitimate questions uh, that doctors have raised. In August? Oh, yes, in, I absolutely... In August, I after being told in November that somebody could die? Yeah, but we were also told as well in June that people could die if 
that were overcrowding in the Lourdes and Connolly Hospital. That's the reality. Uh, we asked the question. We were, we were told but, by the HSE, oh, there was, there but was the no first, issue with capacity. But, but why, 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 well, no, no, because you, you, you raised the issue of June. The first time the doctors in Drogheda were consulted with was on the 13th of June. What happened between November and the 13th of June? Well, you'll have to ask the Minister for Health that, but I mean... But I've the Minister for Health won't talk to LMFM. Well, I've, I've accepted at all times that we must follow the science. That is what is in the best interest of all of the people to get the best possible he- health situation. I was assured time and time again that there was capacity in the Lourdes, that there was capacity in Connolly. When I, when I went to the meeting in June uh, that the HSE organised, I asked the question. I was told, yes, we've agreed the capacity, but when I actually asked them, is it actually there? I wasn't happy with the answer, and I don't think they could, they could really answer but, it. But the, so minister, that the minister's ordered that review. But the, but, but and the, this review is taking place to see whether there is the capacity and what capacity is needed. But that doesn't take away from the fact comment. that nothing happened between November and the 13th of June when the Minister for Health met with the doctors in Drogheda and heard those concerns for the first time. The, the, those, those concerns were, 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 were amplified at that particular time, but all of us have had concerns about whether hospitals could cope uh, with the reconfiguration, because we've seen what's happened in Limerick, we've seen in other areas where reconfiguration. I'm talking about. The, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about you not, or other local TDs. That actually I, I'm talking about the man at the top, the Minister for Health. The Minister, Minister for Health can, can speak for himself. Not, but I mean, <laughs> well, but I, I can't. I, I mean, there's, I, there's a lot going on in the Department of Health I that I am not dealing with day to day. I know. Can I, can I, I, I appreciate there, that, please. Um, yeah, Thomas has a, a wonderful capacity of trying to be on both sides of this argument at the same time. From, from agreeing with Jerry McEntee's position at the time, now to saying that Jerry McEntee's position at the time was suspecting that a review is necessary. I never said that. In, in relation to this. Now, can I just, just, another point, this particular review that has been leaked to the papers where the, the department hasn't the good decency to give it to the local representatives mm. um, to, to have a look at uh, or to add to uh, in advance. Um, first of all, it's not clear whether or not it seeks to put in additional capacity before refiguration, which actually means the closure of A&E in Navin happens. So it's, it talks about identifying that additional capacity, but it doesn't say that it's actually put it, going to put it into place. And a, a PQ that I got from the minister previously said that actually reconfiguration could go on in parallel to this uh, extra capacity being, being looked at. Other questions uh, are, 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 are not included in this. So, for example, Jerry McEntee in the HSC that said that five patients a day would travel to Drogheda from the A&E uh, in, in Navan if it's closed. However, the senior medics in Drogheda said it could be up to 47 patients on a daily basis. So there's no understanding of whether that's going to be researched. OK, and I think that's what Thomas Byrne was saying, and, and it seems to be what is going to be researched in the terms of reference, and that's what Thomas Byrne was saying needed to be done, and that, they were the concerns that he and others were raising. Exactly Everybody the concerns. Raised those concerns. Yeah. <laughs> okay, stay with me, both of you, if you can, because I have to take a break, and then we're going to uh, try and bring uh, Sinn Féin's Darren O'Rourke in on this conversation too. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, Sinn Féin's Darren O'Rourke has uh, joined us on the line. Uh, before I come to you, Darren O'Rourke, I, I just want to double-check something uh, the Minister said earlier. Uh, am I right um, in thinking you said, Minister, that officials in the Department of Health or somebody in the Department of Health asked you to forward on some detail of uh, the terms of reference, a text message to LMFM? But no, I, I sent it on to you this morning. Yeah by way of text message, the, 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 the actual text that I had 
Right. And I said I was, free, I was free to give that to you. Nobody asked me to send it on to you. They just said it was free to All right. public okay. information. And okay. As I understand it, it's on their website. If it's not, that's the matter for them. All right. Well, pretty poor of them. I, I, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people working in communications uh, who, who are paid to communicate with the press. That's specifically their job. Uh, and given all of the efforts that we put in, into trying to get some information off them, well, uh, there's a lot more I, information in the Irish Times this morning, by the way. Um, okay. Well, I was, I was, I was asked... Uh, to come on the show about this. Yes. I asked the department, mm-hmm. can I have the terms of reference? Mm-hmm. You were had an issue there but not getting them. I just sent them on. It's oh, yeah, no, no, I know, I know. I, I, I know, but I, I, and the issue is not with you, Minister. Uh, <laughs> I completely agree that yeah. the public should see them. Yeah, there, there is an I issue. I made them available when There I is an issue, and thank you for sending it on the text. There's, <laughs> I don't have an issue with you, Minister. Uh, let me go to Darren O'Rourke. What do you make of all of this? Yeah, well, it's a continuation of a, of a debacle, and even uh, that last exchange there, Michael. Um, the fact that this is another case of of uh, information that should be made uh, public, and uh, been leaked to a, a select media outlet, uh, wasn't made available to to yourselves in LMFM, despite uh, your pursuit of it. We, we still don't have the terms of reference. Um, I, I have per- been pursuing them. I'm sure others have as well. I, I checked my, my emails. Uh, I, I've had nothing from the Department of Health or from the HSE. Um, I think that's, you know, it's it's no way, um, as I've said repeatedly, it's no way to do government. It's no way to do uh, democracy and engagement with, with, uh, um, with communities. And it's certainly no way to do uh, health service reform and improvement. Uh, but there is an issue here, and it's clear when 7,000 people take to the streets uh, to protest about uh, the proposed closure of the emergency department that they don't want it closed. But this review it is very clear that it's to carry out its work prior to the confirmation of when it's going to close. Oh, no, absolutely. That's, that's a, a really important point, that the, the review... Uh, and this goes contrary to, to some of the commitments that we got, and I, I'll, I'll say specifically from uh, Minister Damien English at, at a large public meeting in, in Navan, um, where he said that any review would have, as part of that review, the option of investment and enhancement of services at, at Navan Hospital um, as a solution to the identified safety risks that are there. But it's clear from the, the terms of references that have been leaked that it's entirely framed on providing assurances to the community that the, the planned reconfiguration uh, will, will, be, um, uh, will be delivered and, and uh, will be done uh, appropriately. Now, I would, in the first instance, raise the question of uh, why uh, the, the, the option of investing and in enhancing services at Navin to, to, as a way to addressing the safety risks isn't there. And second of all, I don't see any basis, given what we've heard in relation to the National Ambulance Service, in relation to GP out of hours, how the HSE proposed to proceed with, 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 with their own plan uh, after this review. And, 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 and I'll pick up on the point that Pater Tobin made there. Uh, the suggestion that they will plough ahead anyway, identify the, mm. the, the additional resources that are needed, don't put them in okay, place, well, but well, plough ahead with your, with, your, with your closure anyway. Well, there's two sets of text that I'm looking at. One is uh, the message uh, that the department sent on to Minister Byrne and was forwarded to us, and the other is uh, the uh, report in the Irish Times today. Uh, just going back to Minister Byrne, because uh, the information you were given says uh, that this will, review will oversee the development of the reconfiguration of services in Navan, and I take it that's to build the hospital up. Look, I mean, Navan Hospital is being built up, and that's getting completely lost in all of this debate. 
what you're talking about here if and when this proceeds, is a very tiny number of patients every day wouldn't be treated initially for their acute surgery or acute treatment in Navin. Uh, but many of them, of course, because of the new rehabilitation ward that's been, that's been put in there, would be back in Navin for the recuperation after operations. And in fact, Navin Hospital will actually be seeing more people. So I think we need to keep reminding ourselves of that because, you know, the impression is given of this, this entire debate is that somehow there'll be nothing left in Navin, when in fact the entire opposite is the case, that Navin has been built up more and more over the last number of years and will continue to be so mm. uh, in the next few years. That's that's the reality. It, so, if Is there a question mark over the emergency department? You said if and when. Uh, I mean, I'd have thought it was clear that the plan is to close the emergency department. Is that not your understanding? The, the plan, that is the plan since 2013, yeah. It's not to close the emergency department. It's to... It's to Get those sickest people. Yeah, to stop providing emergency department services, whatever better. way you want to put but it. But, it is, but, but, but the it, point is, the no, vast majority of people who currently use Navin emergency department will still be using okay. it in the but, new form that it takes. But the vast the, majority. Minister, this review is designed to find a way of closing the emergency department that satisfies everybody that it's safe to send patients elsewhere, that they have the capacity to take them, and that people b- will feel reassured by this. Is that right? It's not a matter of reassurance. It's a matter of providing the safest, best possible care for all of our citizens. But, but that's what this review is to... to, to um, because, of, because of legitimate questions that you and others were asking mm. over the last number of months, that I asked as well. But when that's done, when that's the done, the, the uh, announcement uh, will be made, that the emergency department will be closed and a date will be put on it. Well, I mean, that's that's the policy that the HSE have, that the sickest people would be treated in a different hospital, okay. but but nobody is satisfied at the moment that the other hospitals okay, but have it's to get Can I come in there? Yeah. Toby. yeah, first of all, this whole process is shoddy. LMFM were the primary media organisation in the Loudmead area focusing on uh, the Drada Hospital and the Navin Hospital issue, and yet the HSE excluded yourselves in terms of just giving a, a clear brief in relation to what the terms of reference had. And... Um, Thomas talks about the safety of patients. It's primary. It's not. We are record waiting times for patients in A&Es around the country. Patients are suffering at the moment due to the government policy in terms of A&E. Now, the review has closure built in. So, in other words, the review does not uh, extend to working out the best way to deliver A&E services in this region. It already has a decision built in from the start uh, which is absolutely wrong as well. Thomas talks about the number of patients can can go to Drogheda from, from Mead, but he can't identify how many of those patients are because there's no uh, consensus in terms of the, the medical professionals as to how many patients. And one clear point that has really been forgotten here, the whole system is based on GP referral to MAU. That's... Not uh, as I see uh, in the review. In, in, in this particular review, it is in the review. That is in the review. So they're saying that the MAU won't be GP referred. No, no. It's to make sure that the, 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 the whatever, whether it's MAU or urgent care centre, will be accessible to people. So that's why some local GPs are on this review group. So you're, but again, just to make this clear, the the current system is that it will be a GP referred MAU. Are you saying now that it's not going to be a GP referred MAU, or that this particular review will actually decide that? Well, already a huge amount of people are GP referred into Navan Hospital. Basically, none of them will be affected See, Tom, uh, in the future Tom, when this, the, when this the, happens. The point With, is, what, the, the question the, the that point, you and just, I raised no, at the I, meeting, I, I want to, it, raise it's on radio. It's, it's important we don't 
try to jump out of... Well, the, wor- the wording is the design of the necessary referral pathways in primary care, including GP out of our service. Because right now, if it's GP referral, the whole system is based on the idea that a person will go to a GP, which many people can't go to a GP, and then, you know, it, it becomes really difficult to access this. And the last point is this, that the Save Navel Hospital... That's why we don't want that to be an issue. The, the, the Save Navel Hospital campaign is, is saying this loud and clear. We will not accept any closure of the A&E in Navin. And what we're looking for is acute surgery services to be put in place in Navin to make sure that it can function properly. And we want that element added to the review. Well, and we're not going to accept the it's review. T- it's clear the uh, government, the Department of Health and the HSE are ad idem on this. The emergency department is closing. And this review is to make sure that everybody is happy. That's what the, Mike, the, the Mike, objective Mike, of it all is. All I'm saying, is, Michael, is that the people of Mead won't accept that. So okay. while they may be ad idem since 2013 on this, it's not going to happen on the watch of the Save Navin Hospital campaign, and the government need to get it into their heads that if they want a proper, safe, functioning uh, hospital A&E service in this region, they need to make sure that Navin has an A&E. And also, and, and Darren mentioned this, which Thomas hasn't, and I don't think mm, the review the focuses service, yeah. on this issue, mm. is the issue of the ambulance yeah. service. It is in the review. And yes, we have a report to say that in the future that ambulance services is going to become more difficult in this region. And on okay, Thomas's let the minister plan, come in on the ambulance. Yeah, on Thomas's plan, ambulance services will be far more needed to make sure that it, that it functions. Minister, well, the issue of the ambulance service is in the review. It's as simple as that. Well, it, it, Thomas, the people have to take your word for it because nobody's give, been allowed to see the damn terms of reference except for a leak for the Irish Times at this stage. Well, I have sent them on to LMFM. Not in its totality, you haven't. And that's not the professional way to deliver communications. Well, I, 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 I'm not responsible for delivering communications. You're, you are the spokesperson for the government here, Thomas. The idea that well, well, you're not responsible for the functioning of the HSE is a nonsense. You, well, you stand for election on the basis what the review says you will be able to direct the health service in this country. You are responsible for the delivery of the health service. You are the government's representative on this discussion. Okay, well, the yeah, recommendation of any addition... Of, that's why I provided the okay. terms of Which, uh, which I'll read, Minister. Which, it does. Uh, I'll read it. Uh, recommendation of any additional capacity necessary for ambulance services to meet additional demands resulting from the proposed reconfiguration. That's which, exactly what uh, we've uh, been looking uh, for with Pallor Tovinas. But is it possible? Is it possible? Despite it being one of the most trusted health organisations in the world, people in Mead, people all over this country, trust the HSE, trust our health service. They know it's not perfect. Uh, they know it needs improvement. And Let there. Darren O'Rourke come in on that point, because Darren O'Rourke, you, you uh, were raising the issue of the ambulance service uh, when we saw that report uh, yesterday. Uh, do you believe that it, it's possible, even if this review team comes back and says we need 100% more ambulances or, or personnel working in the ambulance service locally, uh, is it possible to do that? I, I don't believe it is in the time frame that, that is required here. As you said, that. Um, it has been notified to the Minister that there's safety concerns in relation to a small number of patients presented at Navin Hospital. That's That's been notified as far back as, as, as November. There's been a number of meetings with, with me, dep- uh, government deputies, that uh, myself and Padder and, and Johnny Gurk have been specifically excluded from. And I don't know why at that stage... Uh, Thomas Bourne and Helen McEntee and Damien English didn't raise the need for a, a full assessment, a full review of the impact of the, the HSE's proposals on on on, That's on what we've been asking Navin for the last Pro- year. Yeah, and, 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 and why I to ask the HSE what facilities are there to deal with any extra patients 
coming to other hospitals. And there's other conspiracy that? theories about government TDs, and you've been on about this before, uh, meeting with the Minister for Health. I mean, for God's sake, we wouldn't be doing our job if we weren't. It's, it's free to well, you what, what, or to Palatobin. Well, 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 there's a lot of conspiracy... Minister, there's a lot of conspiracy theories which I think... Which I think which I think are worth examining because it is clear that this is a story that is being managed. Uh, and it is insulting, to be honest, the way it's being managed uh, to some of us. Uh, and there's a, another issue that I, I think... Uh, has to be uh, addressed uh, because this review is going to conclude its work in a, a number of weeks. Uh, is it possible that the announcement of the closure of the emergency department in Navan will coincide with uh, the budget announcement? That's, that's the last thing in, 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 in my mind. I've never considered that before. Well, it'd be a great time to bury the news, wouldn't it? When, when, when the country sorry, is on Michael, its knees sorry, look, looking sorry, at budget, the budget... Yeah, hang on a second. Hang on a second. If and when this is actually announced, Michael, I have no doubt that people will know about it. There will be no possibility of doing something like this uh, behind people's back. We want to be completely upfront with people in relation to this. That's why this review is here. That's why doctors have come out and expressed their concerns, whether it's Jerry McIntyre about Navin Hospital and the fact that it's not recognised as a training centre, and whether it's the other doctors uh, who have said that they're, they're worried about capacity. What we're concerned about and what those doctors are concerned about is patient safety. That's the number one priority. There'll be no... Uh, hiding this, this we will, the government will be absolutely upfront about this to make sure that whatever happens is in the best interest of each and every uh, citizen in County Mead. And what I want people to see as well is the investment that's going into Navin that you never hear about from the Save Navin Hospital campaign, the increase in patients, the increase in staff, the increase in budget, and constant, constant negativity. And what we've heard today, quite frankly, I mean, is administration over the summer, people are away, people are here. This is done now. This, this review is taking place. It is taking place on the instructions of the Minister for Health because of questions you've are asked. His because terms of questions reference. Have asked. Are his terms of reference? Are the, the minister of, uh, did the Minister for, for Health prescribe these terms of reference? Minister for Health and the Department of Health agreed these terms of reference. So he specifically excluded the option. He, he ordered specific, this review. He specifically excluded the option of investing and enhancing service at Navin at Navin Hospital to ensure the A and E stays open. And that's an I don't know whether you've been in Navin Hospital yourself. I have been there. Um, there is massive it's investment for you, over the last number of years. It's easy for you, Thomas. It's, it's easy for you living uh, uh, 150 yards from Drogheda Hospital. To I don't Navin, live 150 yards from Drogheda Hospital. To to say, by the way, a majority of Navin Hospital. A majority of our constituents live closer to Connolly Hospital. I've never heard you once talk about Connolly Hospital. Well, I, I, in fact, I have colleagues who work in Connolly Hospital and know it far better than you, than, than you Thomas. OK, OK, let's, let's get personal about this. We'll, we're going to leave it there for the moment. This is obviously going to be a, an issue that uh, we'll be discussing in uh, the coming weeks as this review continues on. But thank you to each of you for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. We were speaking to the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Burney, who's a Fianna Fáil TD for Meath to Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin TD for Meath East, and Padre Tobin, founder and leader of the AIM2 Party uh, TD for Meath West and the chair of Save Navin Hospital Campaign. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Carmel MacDonald has uh, been WhatsApping us, uh, saying, how can uh, Minister Thomas Byrne accept that a decision was made in 2013 and locked in then without taking on board all of the new information available since then and the current realities, the lack of capacity nationally and in the Northeast region, the population growth, the challenges in the ambulance service, the 
goodwill of the people, the concerns of the consultants, the nurses, etc. And uh, she's worried uh, that uh, there's some anger or annoyance at uh, expressions of concern. Thank you indeed, Carmel MacDonald, for that. Some text messages uh, that have come to us uh, this morning. One from Desi in Balbriggan, uh, who feels that uh, the local TDs seem to be on the back foot when it comes to getting information about uh, the hospital. Somebody else texting us saying, had a family member in Drada Hospital a few weeks ago, and they've no staff. As we asked to go for a wash, and uh, we were told that they were short-staffed and no family allowed in to help patients. Uh, it's just not right, says our caller. Paddy Duffy uh, texting us today as well. And he says, the unfortunate truth for this government is that the public can smell BS with no difficulty because they've had plenty of practice <laughs> smelling it over the last 11 years, says Paddy. Oh, dear God, Paddy. <laughs> It's not all that bad, is it? Uh, we'd uh, Deirdre and Kells in touch with us who says it'll be a total disaster if they close the emergency department in our ladies in Navan. Uh, that other hospitals won't be able to cope. Uh, the Minister for Health uh, has responsibility. The book should stop with him and he should be pumping money into Navan uh, because uh, the hospital needs it big time. Thank you indeed, uh, Deirdre, as always, for your message to the programme today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let me bring you some more of uh, the comments uh, that have been coming to us. Uh, Davy says it's disgusting to hear that the Department of Health appear to have deliberately chosen which media outlet to release information to. The dogs on the street know that your show has been chasing the department and the Minister for Answers on the hospital in Navan for weeks now and they've been saying nothing. It's a huge kick in the teeth that the department decided to go to national media with information rather than keeping people informed at a local level. Tommy says he fears that people are fighting a losing battle when it comes to trying to save the emergency department in Navan. The decision has been made. The hospital will be reconfigured. Services will be lost. We've seen it happen countless times before, says Tommy. Thank you indeed, Tommy. I, I don't think I, I can argue with you. It seems as though it is a, a fait accompli that the decision has been made. This review now is clear from what we're reading, actually. Uh, the review, the objective of the review is to make sure that it, it's safe in Drogheda to send people to Drogheda and that uh, some of these other issues uh, whether it's to do with the GPs or services in Navana and so on are addressed and that people feel assured at the end of it before they announce officially the date for closing the emergency department. Uh, There is little or no doubt about that now and that's the terms of reference agreed and this is the important part I suppose because it's been agreed by the Department of Health, the HSE and the Minister for Health the Government. So that's it. Now, as you've been hearing, uh, unions representing workers in Premier Periglaze have called on the Taunasha, Leo Bradker, to intervene uh, uh, because the new owners of the company have decided to close the plant and let everybody go. I've been speaking with Tom Fitzgerald of the United Trade Union. He's been telling me a little bit more about the current situation. Well, the company has wrote to the unions, or ourselves, you know, the union connect and explain and um, that they've put the members there on notice um, 
under their obligations, under collective uh, redundancy legislation. And their intention is, uh, they say, uh, to engage ourselves with a view towards finding alternatives for redundancies are a very likely uh, proposition. Now, the engagement we've had with them so far um, has been around, you know, ways to save the jobs, ways to protect the plant, because obviously it's a, it's, 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 a, it's a key plant, key for the local economy and obviously key for the individual workers themselves. Yeah. So from that point of view, we've been obviously eager. We put a lot of work and time into this. Um, and and not for the first that, time, Tom, sorry to interrupt you, but people will remember that uh, the plan was agreed in the High Court. I'm sure everybody put a lot of time and work into that uh, and approved by the High Court. Yeah, absolutely. And actually only uh, only as early as May of this year. Uh, and the role of the workers has been incredible in terms of coming up with ideas, contributing, uh, playing their part in, in huge measure. So the workers there have had uh, a lot uh, of challenges over the last number of years. It hasn't been an easy place to get on with it, but they put their shoulders as well. Uh, on that issue and then the day-to-day getting on with the business. So, yeah, it's very, very challenging mm. times. So what's happened well, in the last two months, though? I mean, if there was this plan in place and the investment to, to go with it and uh, the idea of some jobs being lost for a period of 18 months while they transferred to renewable energy, it all seemed uh, to uh, have been thought through and funded and so on and approved ultimately by the High Court. But something has obviously happened. Yes. Um, the company would say to us that the heart of this is increasing in energy costs, costs, gas prices in particular, electricity as well, because there has been uh, a huge increase in that period of time uh, arising from the situation in Ukraine. And now we obviously will make we make that point to them as well. Well, mm. you know, a lot of this was foreseeable in May. Um, it's only August now at this stage. They've provided data to show that that. Um, that, that the energy prices have shot up and the implications for the plant. Mm. Uh, and obviously we have to scrutinise that and that because if you can imagine like, we don't take stuff in face value. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. But at face so, value, it's hard to accept it, isn't it? Because no, the, the, invasion, I'm, I'm, the invasion of Ukraine, I think, was the 24th of February. It, yeah, and uh, again, the data shows that um, the impact it has had on gas prices and electricity prices has kind of ebbed and flowed at different mm. points in time. Um, and now that it's clear that there's the sustained campaign, there's a particular uh, gas line, you get to the north line closed off, that's actually had further implications. But of course, we don't just take that stuff in the face of it. We analyse the data, we look at who we're dealing with in terms of the directors, we look at who we're dealing with in terms of investment, investors, and all that work is underway and we're engaging with the company. But there's a second strand as well to factor in here, Michael, yeah. uh, and that's actually uh, uh, the prospect of political intervention because... Mm. Um, there are options here, we believe, for the government. We've wrote to the Tanishta asking him to intervene directly and uh, kind of indirectly as well in terms of those various state agencies, the EPA, Enterprise Ireland, uh, and so on and so forth. We've engaged uh, in a number of correspondence with the Tanishta and we know that the company have, have had also. We haven't just engaged in a way to come and help us save the jobs. We've given specific uh, requests there's a particular fund, the Green EU Transition Fund, I think it's referred to as, and there's actually an EU fund uh, just established in recent times to deal with these eventualities. It's referred to as a temporary crisis framework for state aid measures. Mm. And just in July of this year, um, the German government put £5 billion into uh, a scheme to support those companies uh, that have, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, 
intense, if you like, uh, mm. demand on energy for, for the production arising from the situation. Okay, because there are, there are European state aid rules which prevent uh, governments supporting private companies uh, under certain circumstances. But I take it that German uh, example uh, is the case you're making that this is possible. What has been the response from the Taunusha or the department? Well, unfortunately, so far, we haven't had any response. Okay. Uh, we wrote it, We wrote last mm. week. We wrote uh, again uh, uh, only again on Monday of this week and right. uh, we know that the company have wrote as well so we need yeah, that indeed, indeed LMFM the ongoing engagement with the company ourselves Yeah, uh, indeed LMFM uh, has written to the department and we put a, a series uh, of questions uh, to the department about Premier Perry Clays and what uh, assistance it, it could do or what view it had on the High Court ruling and the uh, action that has been taken now uh, oppose, uh, as opposed to that ruling and, and approval of uh, that uh, package to save uh, the plant. But we haven't had any response either. Well, I mean, that's that's uh, that's helpful from yourself. In yourself you know, it's, it's very, very good, but it's also very unfortunate that you have yourselves, ourselves, the company, a lot of people right into the government uh, uh, because we need an intervention here. But also there's a broader point in all of this, right, as well, uh, Michael, that, um, you know, I'm no expert in this area. Uh, the, the plant produces magnesium, but I'm advised by people who are experts that there's actually huge opportunities here in terms of supporting uh, a more sustainable economy, a green economy arising from this. Now, there's work to be done. So I think the state not intervening, it's disappointing, of course, but it's also short-sighted. If we have to uh, move our economy to more sustainable means of production, and mm. this uh, uh, plant could feature in it, um, you'd imagine that they'd be all over this, that they'd be knocking on door and saying, well, you know, let's tease that out, let's test it out. Mm. What we said to the Tarnished uh, in our correspondence is that uh, um, a task force needs to be established to deal with the likes of these uh, issues, because as well as the lack of intervention, there's also huge bureaucracy and uh, no disrespect to the particular state agencies but they're, they're juggernauts and they move slowly mm. where we know comparable um, uh, state agencies in the UK and elsewhere move much quicker and we need that we mm. need that now we need these state agencies to be nimble to be fast and to be responsive and again no disrespect to those forces they would say uh, at the heart of that is um, manner levels so there just needs to be, the state needs to get involved here. We'll engage the company. The company have to make sure they honour their responsibilities and yeah. we'll do everything we can to ensure they do. But also, there's an opportunity here for the state to intervene in a helpful way uh, in, in, in the circumstances. Okay, in, in lieu of that or somebody coming up with some great uh, idea that could save uh, the plant in, in the short term, is the short term plan to let everybody go and is the long term plan uh, to... Uh, re-employ people in 18 months uh, when they come off gas and go to renewable or, or is that plan still in place? Yeah, the company say that that plan is still in place. That timeline of 18 months might be uh, quite optimistic uh, um, actually at this point in time still that plan, still their intention and that of course has implications from the existing workforce, it'll have implications for those workers who would fill those positions in the funds of time and that's why both unions, Unite and Connect need to be uh, you know, engage with the company, ensure that we have a strategy and a plan to deal with that in the future. It's a very difficult situation, but uh, we we there um, at every step of the way. Of it. Mm, yeah. And uh, just to conclude and to reiterate, your uh, appeal is for state intervention, for the Department of Enterprise, for the Tarnish to, to look at, at this and to see what they can do for the people who are about to lose their jobs, it seems. 
Absolutely, and actually uh, uh, respond uh, to the trade unions, the, the, the uh, you know yourselves and others communicate with them, engage, engage in this issue, and try and address exactly as you said there those and protect those jobs, the local economy, and potentially contribute to the, the, the wider green agenda. Okay, Tom, we'll leave it there for the moment. Many thanks indeed for joining us on the program this morning. Thanks, Michael. Tom Fitzgerald is uh, the regional coordinating officer with the Unite Trade Union. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, do you know how to drive on a, a motorway? And are you sure you know all of the rules, the rules of the road when it comes uh, to driving on a, a motorway? Well, just in case, uh, the Road Safety Authority, Transport Infrastructure Ireland and on Garda Síochána have launched a, a new campaign to make sure that anybody who drives on a motorway knows what the rules are. Let's speak to Brian Farrell, Communications Manager with the Road Safety Authority. A very good morning to you, Brian, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, what's prompted this campaign? Has there been problems? Yeah, yeah, there has. And, and I think in areas where you might have uh, motorway just recently, uh, in, in, in recent years, opened up and uh, people who may not have been used to or familiar with driving on such motorways uh, on such road infrastructure, uh, maybe not, you know, being fully au fait with the, with, with the rules and, and, and what to do uh, when on the motorway. Um, and we, look, we did have a number of incidents on motorways last year, so we felt it was important that we, uh, you know, we kept up the messaging. We, we have a, a series of information videos which are available on our YouTube site and uh, we're pushing those out across uh, other social media channels as well, just to remind people of the basics. And I think that's mm. what it is. It's a back to basics campaign reminding people of the do's and don'ts when it comes to driving on a motorway. And of course uh, you know, the, the, the motorway network has, has expanded in recent years as yeah. I said. I think there's over a th- there's nearly a thousand kilometres of, of, of motorway network. It's doubled in the last five years. Mm. Transformed to the country, uh, it's much easier to get from A to B because, of course, a, a motorway is uh, the fastest roadway that you can drive on legally. It should also be the safest place to drive, shouldn't it? It is, and, and Transport Infrastructure Ireland tell us that motorways are five times safer than uh, a rural two-lane road um, that uh, we're all familiar with, you know, and, and, and forms the majority of the uh, road network in this country. But, of course, you know, because it is, uh, I suppose, designed to such a high standard, is designed to uh, be able to take vehicles at uh, higher speeds. Um, it does. It doesn't mean though that it's it's, it's risk free, and, and I suppose that's why we're, I suppose, putting out this message and this campaign is to remind people that look. Um, while they are safer, if something does go wrong, it has mm. the potential for something very serious to happen mm. on a motorway. And, and, and the basic, basic messages that we want to get out are one lane discipline. And that is, you know, drivers should normally be driving in the left hand lane. Um, you use the outer lane on the right, closer to the, me- the central median when you're overtaking. It's not a fast lane. Oh. It's an mm. overtaking lane. What if, what if you're doing 120? Because that's the maximum speed. Uh, surely it's okay to stay uh, out on the right-hand side uh, in the right-hand lane uh, if you're doing top speed because nobody's going to go, want to go past you, are they? Well, if you're overtaking, Michael, yeah, that's absolutely fine. But once you've completed the overtaking, you've passed the slower vehicles, well, then you indicate and you pull back into the into the left-hand lane. Mm. And that's absolutely fine. That's absolutely appropriate. But for normal driving, you should really be in the, left, the left-hand lane. Okay, but and if you're doing 120 yeah. in the right-hand lane, why do you need to move over to the left? Nobody should be going past you, should they, at 120? 
No, but you should be in the left-hand lane. For okay. ordinary driving, right. for okay. normal driving, you should be in the left-hand lane mm. okay. and tucked in behind the mm. vehicle in front of you who maybe, you know, who should mm. also be doing 120 or mm. the maximum of 120. And that's another point actually you raised, Michael. Well, I was just going to ask you, if the, yeah. if the driver behind you wants to do 140, uh, and you're oh, is that s- breaking the speed limit? Of course yeah. it is. But if you're yeah. sitting in your car saying that's breaking the speed limit, he shouldn't do that. The, the reality of the situation is move over anyway because it really isn't any of your business. Uh, you're only going oh, to yeah. add to the problem. Oh, 100%, yeah. Michael. Mm-hmm. Absolutely yeah. agree with you there. But yeah. ordinarily, you should be in the left-hand lane yeah. um, mm-hmm. uh, unless you're overtaking because, as I said, it's, it's not a fast lane. And another thing is important as well, and it's especially you know given the weather we've been having mm-hmm. and the break in the weather, uh, and that is keeping your distance because at those high speeds, it's going to take you much longer to stop your vehicle if you need to stop it in a hurry. Mm. Um, and you could be talking the length of, you know, of a football pitch to stop the to stop the vehicle at those speeds. So what we always say, kind of a rule of thumb is that if you're following a car behind on a motorway and you can read their number plate, you're probably driving too close to that. Okay, vehicle. right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good And it's just a handy know. little yeah, yeah. you know, way mm-hmm. for people to, 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 to understand how do you keep your distance <laughs> on a motorway. But of course, if we're having, you know, the weather we're having the thunderstorm, I was actually driving the motorway yesterday. I was coming back from a, a launch event that we were doing with the Roads of Tree Festival, mm-hmm. who we're partnering uh, with to, to raise some uh, road, road safety messaging with them. Mm-hmm. And I was driving back on the motorway from Kildare, where they were having the Event, and I was caught in some absolutely dreadful thunderstorms driving back to Cork. Yeah. And th- I mean, the rain was so hard, uh, so, 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 uh, it, w- it was such intense yeah. ra- shower that I had to slow down to 80. I was going to say, I hope you weren't doing 120. I uh, certainly was yeah, not. Yeah. And the reason for that, of course, is that in those conditions, on, on high speed roads where you have heavy downpours like that yeah. and, and heavy rain, there's a danger of aquaplaning, Michael. Yeah. And that's where the, the, the water on the road literally acts like ice yeah. and it will reduce your traction. And if you break, you're, there's a danger of, of skidding mm. aquaplaning yeah. and losing total control of the car. Well, so I, it's I, really I, important I, that I, you adjust your speed to the conditions, especially on motorways. I, I remember about 10 years ago, Brian, I, I drove off the motorway straight to a garage and asked why, what, what had happened to my car. It seemed to be banjacks. The brakes seemed to be gone. I was sliding all over the place. But it's just one of those things that happen. If you're not driving at the appropriate speed, if the road gets wet after such a long period of dry weather is going to be slippy. Yeah, absolutely. And another point as well, after a prolonged period of dry weather, there is a build-up of rubber deposits and oil on the road, Mm. you know, um, because it isn't being regularly washed away. And when it does rain, the rain added to that film of of rubber and oil deposit makes the roads even more treacherous, which is really why you've got to slow down Mm. in such conditions and heed the warnings that Met Aaron are putting out for these uh, thunderstorms that we're we're, we're being hit with this week because they can catch us out because we've Mm. been driving on dry roads, we've been used to drier weather and it can catch us out. And believe it or not, they're also also actually talking about hailstorm uh, as well. And you can imagine what hailstones will do on a motorway. It's like a truck shedding a load of ball bearings. It's, and, and they can catch out. So, you know, the important thing is obviously is to slow down and keep your distance. Well, the first rule of driving safely, and correct me if I'm wrong, is driving uh, to the conditions. Uh, and so that uh, if you're uh, on a motorway and the rain is buckling down like that, uh, that you reduce your speed to 80 as you did, rather than thinking, well, you're allowed to drive at 120 because it's a motorway. And correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not sure, but it was a good long time ago now. It was very, very foggy. 
I think yeah. it was the summer, I think it was around the Wexford area on uh, the motorway and there was a huge pileup because all the cars were going so fast and then nobody could see. They didn't have the vision to see that there were cars piling up in front of them. Yeah, it's in Kildare and I know was the location yeah. very okay, well. Yeah, 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 it's just near yeah. Junction 14 in Kildare. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, very tragic incident, um, yeah. as you say, pileup in, 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 because of the fog. And yeah, you really do have to um, uh, tell your, your, your driving, as you say, to, to suit the environment and to suit the conditions. So that means if, it's, if there's heavy rain, um, if there is fog. But, Michael, of course, as well, wind and motorways are exposed routes and, and you'll often see the, you know, the, uh, the warning sign of the um, weather sock, which is alerting drivers to the fact that you know, the road is exposed to crosswinds and uh, that is particularly um, uh, challenging for anyone who is driving a high-sided vehicle like a truck um, or a bus um, or even obviously a motorcyclist. And, and, and that brings into, in, into, 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 you know, I suppose question the whole area of, of the speed limits. And that is, you know, for, for, for car drivers, the speed limit's mm. 120 kilometres per hour. Trucks, it's actually 90. Buses, 100. And if you're towing a trailer, it's 80 kilometres per hour. So it's important that you know what your speed is. And if you're a truck or a trailer, or you're pulling a trailer, um, uh, or a horse box or something like that, you're supposed to stay in the left-hand lane. Mm. And that's because you're not supposed to be mixing with vehicles of differing um, speeds. So, you know, a vehicle that's mm. restricted to 80 kilometres per hour, like, a, like someone towing a horse box, you know, doesn't get in the way of someone who is driving at 120 kilometres per hour. Uh, uh, and a truck should stay in the left lane, should it? It does, it does yeah. The, okay. the rules of the road it Le- says that uh, it, uh, truck drivers need to stay in the left-hand lane. Let alone uh, <laughs> coming out, forcing their way out uh, and forcing yeah. drivers to, to yeah. break. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it can yeah. be very yeah. frustrating. Yeah. And, and you can see the reason why. Mm. It's because if they're overtaking, and they're overtaking at 90 kilometres per hour, and there's a vehicle mm. coming down, uh, let's say overtaking some some other vehicles, and then you know they're driving at 120 kilometres per hour, and they encounter a, a, a truck in the right-hand lane, and the danger mm. is there that you know you you, you could cause a pileup. Okay, uh, text a WhatsApp message from Margaret. Uh, she asks, "What happens if you're on a three-lane motorway system and you can't go right or left? Where is the keep left pass right rule?" Then she says. Well, it's it, it, it's it's again, it's it's keep left, stay in the yeah. leftmost lane for normal driving, mm. and it's a very good question, and mm. that's something that we've addressed in the new video that we mm. have uh, released, which shows what to do and how to drive on a three-lane motorway. Indicate and the though, obvious one that comes mm. to mind is, is the M50, mm, yeah. and you mm. can log on to our website and, and or onto our YouTube page and uh, look mm. at that video. It gives really good, uh, you know, show me, tell yeah. me um, uh, uh, instructions on how to drive on a, on a three-lane. Yeah, I think it'd be a good idea for all of us to look yeah. at the Road Safety Authority website, yeah, because a lot of people find the M50 very difficult, but I, I take it uh, the uh, simple answer to Margaret's question is that if she doesn't feel safe to switch lanes, uh, that she should indicate, uh, and hopefully uh, one of the cars in the left lane will pull back a bit, and then she will feel safe because she'll have the oh, space yeah. to do it. Exactly, and always look for your opportunity and your gap. Uh, but you know, if 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 you're, you, you know, you also need to take into account when your exit. Uh, or what exit you're going to be taking as well and judge your driving on the basis of well look I need to be in a certain lane if my exit is coming up fairly soon Mm. or you know just one or two exits away you know you judge your driving on the basis of where you're going to be Mm. exiting uh, you're exiting the exiting the motorway and uh 
Yeah, and obviously the prevailing traffic as okay. well. Uh, and you mentioned the M50, and, and you mentioned it. <laughs> I didn't bring this up now. Uh, is it all right to just drive in the middle lane on the M50? It is, yeah. No, continuously. As long as you're not exceeding, as long as you're not exceeding the speed limit, and your exit isn't coming up, no. and you're, you know fairly soon, no, but and you're, you're not having to immediately pull into the mm. left-hand lane at the last minute to leave the motorway. Okay, there's people who continuously drive in the middle lane, though. Yeah, and I suppose it, it depends on the, the traffic and, uh, and and what, mm. as I said, what exit you need to take. Okay, but cars passing cars passing them left and right, and they're in the middle lane and thinking, I'm not moving from here. Yeah, but one of the things you could be doing as well, though, uh, Michael, is um, there's traffic joining the motorway always as well. So what you want to do maybe is to move out of the way to let Mm. a gap for for people to drive or or to join the motorway. So it's really about reading the road, um, you know, the on-ramps and the off-ramps and the traffic, and, and of course, how close the off-ramps and the on-ramps are. Mm. And what you don't want to become is an obstruction yourself. And a good road craft is is, is to maybe move out into the middle lane to allow Mm. vehicles join the motorway so you don't cause an obstruction. Okay. If you get a phone call, can you pull into the hard shoulder and take the call? Oh, brilliant question. These are, you know, and, you know, people doing that might think they're being really well-intentioned and doing something really safe here and heeding our messages about not driving and using a phone. But it's actually an offence to stop on the motorway hard shoulder unless it's an emergency, i.e. a breakdown or you're directed by a guard to pull in. Um, It's extremely dangerous. So, no, find a, a proper designated parking area or, you know, come off the motorway onto one of the service stations to make a call. But no, never stop on the hard shoulder of a motorway. And the reason why we say that is because it is incredibly dangerous. Most deaths on motorways happen because people are in the hard shoulder. And if you break down, you have to go into the hard shoulder. You're advised and very seriously advised, I think, Brian, to get as far away from the road as possible. Yeah, up, you know, behind the barrier, up onto the embankment. But uh, I, I'm, look, I, I, this is going back a couple of years. I remember listening to someone in the UK being interviewed about uh, motorway safety, and they said that in the UK, the life expectancy on the hard shoulder of a motorway was about 15, 20 minutes. It, and, and, you know, Michael, we, we, shot, we shot that information video um, that we're talking about on the M1. And, you know, we had the Guardi helping us, and, and, and they had rolling roadblocks to, to slow the traffic down. But I have to tell you, it, it is a scary experience. It is a really dangerous place to be um, when cars are flying past you. And as you said earlier, they're not all doing 120 kilometres per hour. It, it is quite scary. And, and yeah, it, it's not a safe place to be. That's why you should never stop on the hard shoulder of a motorway. OK, somebody else WhatsApping saying, I assume the law applies uh, to people with yellow number plates that use our motorways and uh, I think we'll take that as a, a statement rather than a, a question but somebody else says it's Matty in RD who says I've been driving at 115 kilometres in uh, the left hand lane which was clear as far as I could see uh, and uh, then somebody came up so close behind me I, I thought he wanted to see what brand of light yeah, bulbs I, I sure use he was. Yeah. It's, um, uh, that, that's a problem isn't it there's very little you can do about that you can't move over to let them go by they should have just gone by in the first place. 
Yeah, exactly. In, in, look, in, in a situation like that, look, it's it's you know you're you're legal to bring your speed limit up to 120 kilometres per hour. If I was that driver in that situation, I, I just bring my speed limit up to 120. Um, I, I you know I, you're legally entitled to 100, 100 to drive at 120. Uh, it's important to keep the traffic moving as well. So in a situation that you you can move, bring it up to 120, and what you might find is that the car will settle back and and, and keep its distance. If not. And if you're, you know, like you concentrate and control your driving, that's that's what you need to do. But if you find someone being incredibly intimidating and that's what it is, you, your best bet might be to just pull off the motorway and rejoin it again. If you're finding that you're dealing with aggressive and intimidating driving. OK, uh, one last question uh, for you, Brian. If a, a truck or a bus is in the far left lane and the car is in the middle lane, uh, matching the truck's speed, which manoeuvre is right? Overtake or undertake? <laughs> yeah, you you should really be progressing, you know, at, you know, to, at, at the speed limits to ensure that there's a, a a good flow of traffic. The truck will be driving at a maximum speed limit of ninety kilometres per hour, which means you're driving at ninety on one hundred and twenty. Now you're completely entitled to do that if you wish, but really for good progression on a motorway. Um, which is designed to uh, take fast flowing uh, and, and ensure free flowing traffic. You probably need to maybe just bring your speed up, and, and uh, as long as it's safe to do so, uh, and progress on the motorway on your journey. Okay, we're out of time, but uh, just some very quick bullet points. Make sure you indicate it if you are changing lanes. Don't stop. Keep driving. It's a one-way street as such, and never try to turn around. Uh, anything else you'd like to add, Brian? Look, just the other one as well, and that is if you are on a motorway journey, uh, make sure you have your toll fare to, you know, so mm. you're not scrambling for mm. it as you're approaching yeah. the toll booth. Make sure you have enough fuel. You'd be amazed how many people who really? maybe break yeah. down because they didn't check the fuel gauge. And of course, if you have an electric vehicle, make sure you know where your charging points are uh, along your journey if you need to charge up. Okay. All right. Listen, we'll leave it there, Brian. Thank you indeed. Uh, people will uh, see more when uh, the campaign. Uh, is underway. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's Brian Farrell, who is spokesperson for the Road Safety Authority. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. 58-year-old Declan Power from Dramiskan thought he was talking to a 13-year-old schoolgirl called Charlotte on Facebook. And in the text messages to Charlotte, he arranged to meet her and have sex with her in her home when her mother was at work. He brought condoms with him for the purpose of doing that and he had discussed that Charlotte would return back to Dramiskin with him uh, and live with him uh, in his home uh, hidden from public view. Uh, The truth of the matter was that Declan Power was not speaking to a 13-year-old girl. Charlotte was, in fact, a a man who had set a, a trap for Declan Power And this is a clip from a video that was put online uh, when that man met Declan Power and read out some of the messages and asked him some questions about the messages that had gone between the two of them. How old are you? 58. 58. What what have you got in common with a child? you built a high fence around your garden, haven't you? So your neighbours can't see in, so they can't see her walking around naked. Yeah? You even told this girl, this child, that we're going to dye her hair blonde 
change her appearance and change all her documentation in case the police were looking for her. Didn't you? What would you have done if you got this girl to Ireland? If you got this girl to Ireland and she was scared and wanted to go home, what would you have done then? No, you wouldn't have sent her home. And you would have risked you would have risked getting in trouble with the police, would you? That's what worries me. What would you have done? You need to start owning up to it. You have planned this down to the finest detail, haven't you? What sort of man, what sort of adult does this sort of thing? You are one sick bastard. You are one sick individual. You told this child, yeah, that she was only allowed out at night in case she was spotted. Okay, so tell me your intentions for this child then when you got her back to Ireland. Because that's what you were going to do. You were going to abduct her, wasn't you? Take her away from her family. What were your intentions for this child? Bring her over to Ireland, that's all. Bring her over to Ireland and do what? Have her as a girlfriend. Have her as a girlfriend? What, a child? She's only just become a teenager. Yeah, I know that. Okay, that's uh, Jacqueline Power who wanted to bring uh, this 13-year-old girl back uh, to Ireland as a a girl, a friend, uh, but uh, it it wasn't a a girl. It it was a a trap uh, that was set for him by uh, these paedophile hunters. Um, Let's speak to Maeve Lewis, who's uh, the CEO of the One in Four group. Uh, Good morning to you, Maeve, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Disturbing to listen to that. Disturbing to think that somebody would think that that is something that would be okay to do or however they could justify it in in their own minds. Uh, How do you hear it? Good morning, Michael. Oh, Michael, I mean, there are so many different ways one can look at this and different things that need to be said about this. Um, I mean, it's a very disturbing um, piece of audio, isn't it? Hmm. Um, I mean, this guy is not the first Irish man who has been caught by vigilantes in the UK attempting to make contact with a very young teenager to have sex with them. Um, And it just highlights how indeed helpless we're all becoming in the face of what is happening online, how children are being abused online, how children are exposed online, and how difficult it is to help children protect themselves because in many situations, they're far more tech-savvy than their parents or their teachers. Mm. Um, the role of vigilantes, I mean, in in some of the cases that um, have involved Irish men, uh, the vigilantes will immediately turn them over to the police, but that might necessarily always be the case. And is it appropriate that vigilantes would be involved in this? Yeah, well, that was but the on the other hand, police mm. forces are so under-resourced and so... Um, struggling to keep up with all the tech advances um, on the dark web that it is almost it it is impossible for them it it seems almost uh, to keep up and to you know um, put in place operations like this sting operation Um, so I I think we have we are facing a huge problem and it's only getting worse Um, I think I, I think the evidence that the vigilantes gathered uh, led to, to the conviction uh, and uh, now Declan Power 
uh, begins a, a two-year, four-month sentence. Uh, and that will come as a, a relief, uh, I'd imagine, to some people, given what his intentions were in this particular case. Uh, it couldn't have happened because the girl didn't exist. But as far as he was concerned, there was a 13-year-old girl. Uh, he was travelling to meet, to have sex with, to bring back and have locked up in his house in Dramiskin, where he built some high fence. Uh, and I'm sure his neighbours are listening this morning thinking... Did we know we were living beside this man? There's a lot of people who would know this man, obviously, in this locality. It's reported uh, that he was a healthcare worker in Dundalk. I think he says in the video he was a, an engineer, so I'm not too sure uh, where truth lies and all that. But uh, he, he, he's he been in our midst uh, as such. Uh, and people will be asking questions about Declan Parr now this morning, won't they? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, this was a sting operation mm. where an actual child was not involved. Um so we have no idea how many vulnerable children um, have actually been entrapped uh, in reality, mm. um, you know, by, by people like Declan Parr, um, who, who prey on what probably are vulnerable children. We don't, you know, we often don't know. Um, that is all to say nothing of the hundreds of guard raids that take place in this country every year. Um, on people who are watching images of child sexual abuse online, um, uh, which is again uh, probably a grossly underreported and underdetected um, activity, where you know in each case there is a real child being abused. Um, we need to consider. I mean, what is it that that drives people to to uh, be you know? To, to become sexually aroused and attracted to children, be it mm. online or be it in actually pursuing and preying on a real life child. Mm. Um, as our name suggests, um, Michael, I mean, one in four is, is one in four um, Irish adults describe having been sexually abused in some way as a child. Um, and that is a shocking statistic still. Um, now we're waiting for new research from the Central Statistic Office. I hope that everything that's happened in the past 20 years will mean that number may have reduced. Mm. But, um, you know, the signs are not good. Um, And, you know, as a society, you know, the Internet, the World Wide Web has brought immense advantages to society. But there is also a very, very dark side to it. Um, We recently had a, a seminar here in Dublin um, around the whole issue of child abuse. We had an expert from Interpol over, uh, working specifically on internet offending. And, I mean, his message was very, very bleak indeed. It was one of the scariest presentations yeah. I've ever heard in my life. Really? In, in terms of how, how um, under-resourced and ill-equipped police forces around the world yeah. are to keep up with what's actually happening. Well, you you so, work with people uh, all of the time, Maeve, uh, who have fallen victim to paedophiles. You also work with, with paedophiles. Uh, and you know more about this uh, than most people, I imagine. Um, and this question might seem silly to you, but if you'll allow me, I'll ask it anyway. Because when uh, I was growing up, they used to talk about dirty old men and Macintosh coats, Macintosh coats, and, and that sort of thing. But it, uh, am I right in saying there's no way you'd pick out a, a paedophile? Uh, that it could be anybody. Uh, I mean, looking at that video of uh, Declan Power, there's no way you'd pick him out of a, a crowd and suggest that there'd be something untoward about this very clean-cut, middle-aged man, respectable-looking man. Absolutely not. And I mean, the first thing to say is we work with about six, 50 sex offenders a year. 
um, most of those would not be classified as paedophiles in that their sole sexual attraction is not to children. Many of them are in adult relationships as well, um, but also sexually abused children. And if you looked at the people coming uh, to the programme at one in four, you would never pick out, as you say, the stereotypical dirty old man in the mm. raincoat hiding in the bushes. Um, most of them are people who have either abused a child they know, be it in their family or in their community, and or um, they're people who have become involved in downloading images of child sexual abuse on the internet and who have been caught by the Gordy because um, they have been paying for such images and there is, you know, across the world, police forces are working together to track down through financial systems um, who is buying those images, who is producing these images and so on. Um, it's also very stark that we in the autumn will have a group for young offenders, the 18 to 25 year olds, um, and in the main, these young guys will break your heart. Their lives are just starting out. Many of them became involved in sex offending by downloading porn at incredibly young ages. Um, they're often describing, you know, early puberty, 10, 11, 12, um, maybe happening on child sexual abuse images, becoming sexualized to those images, and then maybe going on to commit a contact offence. Some of those young guys are in college or in training, employment and it will now be on the sex offence register and uh, the implications that will have for them going forward in their lives is horrendous. Um, I mean, I suppose the good news is good treatment programmes like we provide here, an evidence-based programme at one in four, Mm. do have very positive outcomes in terms of very, very much lowering uh, the re-offending rates. Um, But there needs to be a programme like this in every county in Ireland, I would believe. Uh, I I don't know if uh, you know uh, the pop rock folk group Mumford and Sons, Maeve. Um, The singer in that band, Marcus Mumford, uh, has just uh, released a a single and I think an album to do with his child abuse. And he was abused, he says, when he was a child, when he was six years of age, uh, which was 30 years ago, effectively. Uh, And um, the first verse of the story reads, I can still taste you and I hate it. That wasn't a choice in the mind of a child and you knew it. You took the first slice of me and you ate it raw, ripped it in with your teeth and your lips like a cannibal, you effing animal. Uh, Does that reflect um, the kind of impact that child sexual abuse can have on people? I mean, to be writing something as passionate as that 30 years after the event and not having spoken about it in between would seem peculiar to a lot of people. I mean, that would reflect the experience of the survivors who attend our psychotherapy programmes here in 1 and 4. Um, People sometimes imagine that, you know, once the abuse stops, the child will be fine, the child will forget and so on. That sadly for most people is not the case the impact of that abuse, which is so viscerally described there by Mumford and Sons, is um, very commonly what people describe, that sense of feeling contaminated, of feeling um, self-disgust, of feeling responsible for what happened, of absolutely despising oneself. That continues, I mean, on right throughout a person's life um, for many people, unless they can access a service like one in four and um, can actually begin to reveal, often for the very first time, 
what has happened to them. Uh, people often, uh, there's a quote from, a, a quote from a, a, an American psychiatrist, mm. Judith Herman, who says, you know, trauma in adulthood can deform the personality, but trauma in childhood both forms and deforms the personality. And people often don't make the connection between the awful feelings of self-disgust they have about themselves with what happened to them until they begin to tell the story and until they begin to make those links and so on, and then have the possibility of moving on to live um, a life that is, you know, much more satisfying and contented for people actually begin to like themselves. So um, there is such a need for services, uh, which obviously are always under-resourced. I mean, for about four months this year, we had to close our waiting list. It's, it's happily, it's open now again. Um, but the same would be true across all the rape crisis centres and the National Council okay. Service and so on. Everybody is providing services. Okay, and people adults. can contact yeah. you through ie, and uh, the phone number is a Dublin number 01662 Maeve, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Much appreciated. Thank you very much indeed. Maeve Lewis, CEO of One in Four. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents which Garda are investigating and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Adele Dugdale of Trim Garda Station joins us for the report this week. And many thanks uh, for doing so. We're going to begin in Dundalk and a robbery that uh, occurred in the town last Thursday. Yeah, so this is a robbery of a person there, Michael, on Thursday the 11th of August at around 10pm at the DKIT campus on the Dublin Road in Dundalk. So a male, while he was out walking through the site, was approached by two unknown males who threatened the injured party and was made hand over his wallet and were urging any persons who was in the area at the time or who was any information regarding this incident to please make contact to Dundalk Garden Station on 042 Next to Bettystown, where you're hoping to get some information about a burglary that occurred last Friday. Yeah, so it occurred on the 12th of August at around 11.30pm in the Bettystown area. The occupants returned home to find their home had been broken into and a um, a volume of cash was taken. So members of Ashburn Garda Station are seeking the assistance of the listeners to see if they were in the area or noticed anything suspicious to please make contact to Ashburn Garda Station on 01801060. Another burglary to report on next. Uh, this one occurred in Drogheda and this happened this day last week. Yes, so this occurred in the Highlands area of Drogheda on Tuesday the 9th of August around midnight. The home was entered and the car keys were taken. The suspects made off in a red Mazda. So if any of your listeners were in the area or have dash cam footage or information relating to this incident, we ask that they could please make contact to draw the guard station on 041-9874200. Okay, possibly somebody has some information about a bicycle that was stolen in Drogheda. Yeah, so again on the 9th of August around 2pm at Bachelor's Lane in Drogheda, it's a white mountain bike with orange logos, so quite distinctive on it, was taken from the area and if your listeners have any information regarding this, they could please make contact with draw the guard station on 041 I'm sure the rightful owner would appreciate that. Uh, we're going to uh, hear about some criminal damage that happened uh, next in Loch Crew. Yeah, so Kelsgardy are investigating this incident. Um, unfortunately, criminal damage occurred at the Loch Crew Cairns by sometime between 5pm on Wednesday the 10th of August and 10.20pm on Thursday the 11th of August. A person or persons lit a fire at this Neolithic site causing damage to the ancient grounds 
because this is a protected national monument, we're really seeking um, your listeners for information or any witnesses in relation to this that may contact Kells Garda Station on 046 928 with the information or the Garda Confidential Line on 1800 Okay, we're going to conclude with uh, some advice uh, and uh, I think we all think we all know everything about scams and uh, potential uh, problems with text messages and the like but some of them are very sophisticated and we need to be very, very careful, I think. Yeah, so again, unfortunately, there is um, a new scam going around from an AIB bank. So we're just warning the public to be aware of these current text messages. Um, unfortunately, they can come from any financial institution. The text message will um, tell you to call a number regarding a recent transaction on your account. And then you're put through to an agent who will then try to extort your personal and account details from you. So we're just really urging your listeners to not respond to these texts. Never, never give out your personal details, which would include your bank account details, your PIN numbers, your passwords, etc. over the mm. phone. And if you do believe you have been a victim of this type of fraud, uh, you can contact your local guard station or your financial institution. There's a, a very interesting thing about that one because uh, I've seen it and uh, it'd be very easy to fall for it uh, because the one that I saw was a scam message that came in a, a thread with uh, messages that actually had come previously from AIB. Right. How, however yeah. they managed to do that is beyond me. Yeah, but just if, if you are weary and, and it doesn't seem right, trust your gut and contact your bank or the phone number that is on the back of your bank, your, your credit or debit card. Okay, very good. Uh, be very, very careful. Thank you indeed, uh, Garda Adele Dugdale of Trim Garda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.